I think the fact that I just started at the moth when my mom died, she died about a year in, honestly saved my life. Like the two things that I feel like saved me were the moth and at the time, right after 9-11, I went to Burning Man. Hi, it's Katie Lazarus. Welcome to Employee of the Month. If you're a virgin to the show, Employee of the Month is a lens into people's careers and what makes them who they are. And I'm delighted to have Catherine Burns, the artistic director of The Moth, as our first guest. It's hard for people who have been enraptured by The Moth, either seeing it in person, which I think is the best way to see it, or listening to it on The Moth Radio Hour, which you can download as a podcast or hear on your public radio station or read any of their compilations of books as well. But it's really hard, I think, for anyone who has been to The Moth to imagine that this was once a teeny upstart. But I do remember way back when when it was, and it's been a thrill to watch Catherine Burns rise as an artistic director and as a performer to have an artistic director who actually is really highly involved in crafting the stories, and The Moth is extremely involved in crafting the stories. And I'm so delighted to have Joe Firestone on, who is one of my favorite comedians. She is incredibly inventive and has had a series of really fun shows. Some are solo performances, some are talk shows and game shows. You may recognize her from The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon, which she also wrote for, as well as The Chris Gethard Show, and many more. You may have read her in The New York Times. You may have heard her on another podcast. If you haven't, if you have, here is first Catherine Burns, the artistic director of The Moth, and then we'll get to hear from Joe Firestone. I think... Most people, when they think about Alabama, they immediately think about the Reese Witherspoon movie, <laughs> Sweet Home Alabama. I'm sure that's what everyone thinks about. Can you tell me a little bit about your, your growing up there? Sure. Yeah, I grew up in a tiny town, Alexander City, Alabama. My, I sometimes joke that if you write Alabama across the map, I grew up on the next to the last A. Yeah. But that is pretty much it. It was a little mill town at the time. But it was kind of a beautiful place to grow up. I did run screaming at 18. <laughs> um, I always, like, from a pretty young age, I knew that I wanted to live in a big city and maybe have, like, a little bit of a different life. But it, it was, like, a nice, you know, warm place to grow up. You're an extraordinary storyteller and writer. How did you choose to become a, a producer and a curator and an artistic director, really? I knew almost out of the gate that I wanted to be a director of some sort. I mean, oh. I thought film director. Were you bossy as a kid? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, if my youngest stepsister, Jessica, were here, she would tell you at the time I tried to get force my entire family. I was in, I guess, about seventh grade at the time to do this production of Annie based only on the fact that Jessica, who's like six years younger than me, had red hair. That was the entire basis of why we were going to do this. And I ordered everyone around. It was highly annoying. She, and and yeah. for our podcast listeners, Catherine Burns has uh, beautiful flaming red hair. <laughs> all fake, y'all. All fake. But the, yeah. um, but but the yeah. y'all is authentic. The y'all yes. is authentic. Yeah, very good. Um, yeah, so I, I was a little bit bossy. And um, I got to direct a little bit of theater in high school. I really loved it. And then I went off to college thinking that I would write first, like this is how writing would be my ticket because in because directing seemed like a big thing. There weren't a lot of women directors. Yeah, that's only really starting to change now, sadly and insanely. So I ended up directing my first movie, like right out of college with friends. It was a feature film, really super super indie. And great, um, no, but it was like we we were trying to decide between shooting on Super 16 and 16. Okay. Film buffs will follow that, but we ended up shooting on 16. But it was like really one of the last movies that was the last era where you would shoot on film and yeah. not shoot on video. So um, we did that, and then I ended up basically producing the movie largely by myself. I had a producing partner, but I ended up, you know, I think it's sort of a female thing. I did doing a lot of the work. I'm proud of myself. I actually stepped up and said I deserve producing credit. And then people, word circulated that I had actually been a pretty great producer on the movie, and I ended up getting producing jobs, and this became my way into professional film. And so that's actually how I ended up producing, is like people, it was easier to get a job as a producer than a director. Can we pause right there? Because yeah. I, I do see producing can be a creative Oh, absolutely. Activity. I'm not saying it's not. Did I say it's not? No. No, not at all. I'm oh, about yeah. to okay. you know, do a sort of a backhanded compliment. Okay. I am a writer. I love interviewing people and being a talk show host, which is like <laughs> an offshoot of both comedy and coming from a, you know, a clinical psych background. But I had to produce because no one would even when I had interviews go viral, I, I wouldn't get the meeting for like, oh, maybe we should have her write for the show or be a totally. TV writer. So I was curious, like, how much was that you taking yourself out of the game of directing and how much of it was actually genuinely gravitating towards producing? 
I don't if, know. If you can at, tease it. At apart. the time, I was earning my living completely by being a paralegal. So when somebody said, I'll pay you, honestly, a very tiny amount of money to go for like two months and produce this feature film, and I was able to kind of just wrangle it yeah. and pay my bills doing something creative, I jumped on it. I do think that producing is incredibly creative. Yes. Like in the moth, our be. producers, it can be, are some of the most creative people that we have. Certainly producing the moth is, it requires so much creativity and jumping around in your mind. And so but it's maybe a slightly different kind of creativity, but it's certainly creative. But I, so I really loved it. So just, just to suddenly have my living be being on sets and being around other directors, like watching how other people did it. And I was doing this all while trying to get together my next thing to direct so it wasn't like I just dumped that. It was just more like instead of earning my living, filing things and typing legal briefs, which I was literally doing, maybe it would be great to earn my living actually being immersed in the world that I'm saying I want to help lead at some point. And so that's how, how I did it. And it worked out pretty well, and I kept getting bigger and bigger gigs up until I finally at one point hit a wall. Because the problem is, is like especially like I think in film, at least in the indie world, you can be working 18-hour days, like turnaround, which is what they call it, between like between when you walk away from set till you walk back the next day, can sometimes only be seven or eight hours. Like It's like downright yeah. abusive. And so what ha- was happening was I wasn't doing my own work because I was working all the time. And so I had to find a way out of that. And the bridge was I was actually doing television production for a while, knowing that I didn't think that was the be-all, end-all for me. But it actually turns out that flying around the country interviewing people all the time is unexpectedly prep work for to go on to become a moth producer. I just didn't know it at the time. So I was in what I now refer to jokingly as my is this all there is phase when I moved to New York City and like one of my very first nights there, someone took me to the moth. So this is around 2000. Yeah. You go to the moth to see it? I go to see it. And where was it? It was on a boat. <laughs> it was this little boat that I don't think exists anymore. Did you swim there? No, but it was like this strange little, like really not big boat. And I'm sorry, where was the boat? Parked in the East River. Okay. No, sorry, parked in the Hudson. And so how did you get, did you swim? No, you. it was like docked. Okay. And you walked up a little thing. I love that I I'm fixated on like. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, know, I can't remember the name of the boat. It had like some very charming name that I don't okay. have in my head right now. Um, but. So I went on the boat, and it was like one of the things where my friend who invited me was volunteering. So then she just immediately kind of abandoned me. But like, thank God, I, I owe my whole life to her that she brought me there. And so I went and just sat by myself, and it was a, one of the most magical nights of my life. And Ted Conover, who I still to this day work with on stories, he told probably his most sort of famous and beloved moth story that night, which is called Sing Sing Tattoo, about trying to interpret a tattoo that was on the back of an inmate's back that was in Spanish and trying to figure out what it was. And then his heartbreak when he really gets to the bottom of it. And I was transfixed and became kind of obsessed with the show and started coming to all the shows and trying to volunteer and just doing everything I could to help them. And I, I really do want to just explain to listeners, because it's almost impossible. I feel like I'm saying like, Back in the old day when it was black and white television and there were only three channels, but it it really was that at the yes. beginning. It was a uh, what people call mom and pop sort of organization, except it was, you know, George Dawes Green, who had come from yep. the South, who's a, a, a very well-respected author, you know, starting this. Yeah. And – it was a volunteer-only organization, it seems like, or at least if you were getting paid, it wasn't much different from what volunteers were making. I don't think they were making very much. Yeah, Joey Zanders at the time was the artistic and executive director. Leah Tao was then the producer, later went on to be the executive and, and artistic director. She and George eventually hired me when Joey left in 2001. But yeah, it was just it was really small. I mean, it was already, by the time I was coming, wildly popular. They were getting incredible, you know, George Plimpton, you know, Frank McCourt, all these great literary lions were coming to tell stories because George, you know, knew everyone. So the moth nurtured the careers of Jonathan Ames, Dan Kennedy, yes. Mike Birbiglia. I'm probably forgetting many other white males. Um, <laughs> how much yep. was that? You, Leah, George Dawes Green, who was who was picking? Because there, there were sort of what I call moth regulars. By the time I came in, there were definitely regulars. And I can't speak to before I came, but once things went on, um, Jonathan Ames became one of our regular hosts. Andy Borowitz also yes, was yes. a regular host. 
Who um, wrote for the Facts of Life, and I really don't think he he gives it enough credit. I agree. It was a great he, show. He told some great moss stories about that, though. <laughs> um, but He's yeah, milked it. He's milked it. Totally. He's wonderful. At that time, like right before I came on, they had started the open mic story slams, and this became this hotbed for talent. And so one of the shifts, I think, that when I started, which was now early 2002, I came on full time, Lee and I were much more starting to mine the slams for talent because there were these people coming up who were just incredible storytellers. And because it was competition, people were coming, they were watching each other, they were learning. Jennifer Hickson helped launch the slams and she was in there. She would watch you and you would get off stage and she would send notes like to every single person saying how, like, pumping people up because you'd have a shy person who came and maybe whispered, maybe their scores were a little low, but she could see some talent in them and would send them notes. And so this whole community developed around that. And one of the things I'm proud of that Lee and I did was we made, helped make that shift of pulling people out of the slams and putting them onto the main stage. And it took us a while. Like in the beginning, some of the slam stories would seem a little like shallow maybe compared to some of the others. But what it, it, it sounds so obvious now, it almost seems weird to even say it out loud. But as we discovered, okay, to make the transition, it's like about finding the right story. That These stories that are told in five minutes are one beautiful thing. But to sustain a story for 10, 12 minutes in the main stage, you need to try to find a story, which, as we would say it now, has higher stakes. And so you sort of identify the people who are amazing storytellers and then sit with them and spend time with them and try to figure out what their highest stakes stories are and then put those stories on the main stage. I mean, one of the greatest moth storytellers of all time is Kate Braestrup. Okay. Um, so do you know who she is? No. So she is the minister for the main game wardens. So these are the men and women who, when your kid's lost in the woods, they're out trying to find them, risking wow. their own life. If your husband goes through the ice, they're the ones trying to fish out his body. And Kate both ministers to the people waiting for news of their loved one, but then also ministers to the game wardens when maybe something horrible happens, right? So she does this double duty, and she's an incredible person. And um, almost all of her stories <laughs> involve some sort of death. My, uh, the quintessential Catherine and Kate moment was we were in the green room of her first show, and I heard her just from across the room say, I have stories that are funny where no one dies. And I just sort of turned. I didn't even hear the rest of the conversation. I was like, Kate... You don't have any stories where no one dies because like, that's how it feels. But she is so I – mean, her entire life is helping people through these moments of death that she can really handle it. And the second she takes the stage, you know that you're in the hands of a master. Yeah. And she's told, honestly, some, both of her main stage stories have been two of the most difficult stories ever told at the moth. But she so commands it. And it's because she has learned – how to handle this material because it's literally her job. Yes. I mean, her, her book is called Here If You Need Me, and it's about how to hold space for people at times of crisis. Reading that book saved my life at one point. But, yeah, so she's amazing. And so I think that you need – like Liz Gilbert just did The Moth. It was like a dream come true, Elizabeth Gilbert, who wrote Eat, Pray, Love. And she told what in the hands of a less talented storyteller would have been a really scary, messy story. And she told a story about her wife who died, who passed away right, a yeah. year soon. Yeah. And, um, who was also a, a wonderful storyteller totally. herself. We tried and tried to get her, and she died before we were able to get her, and we are heartbroken. That's like stories left to tell, you know, what a loss. But, um, but Liz, again, took the stage, totally commanded it, and never once did the audience feel like Liz, even though she was very emotional. It wasn't like she was trying to hide her emotion. But you would never once have thought that she was going to, like, kind of lose it and run off stage crying. You could just feel that she was in control of what she was saying. And I think that's what's so critical. Well, and it's these subtle differences between empathy and sympathy and yeah. emotive ver- ver- versus sort of, you know, erratic. Or I don't know what, you know, I was going to say emotional. Yeah. Um, it, it is these subtle differences that, that one can convey. And and I'm so glad that The Moth has such a range of storytellers from all over the world. You had told me that in Ireland it is not successful. I mean, here, The, the Moth is this global <laughs> brand. It's everywhere. I know. We couldn't make it over in Ireland. It's so embarrassing. Yeah. So, what, I mean, part of it was just in our slight defense, but then I'll get into the – there's like the artistic heart of it um, is like it's just – it's a very tough – country to set up a not-for-profit. They're called charities, and their laws are really crazy and really intense, and it's very expensive. So by the time we realized what we were supposed to be doing, we would have had to pay, like, hundreds of thousands of dollars. so interesting, though. Like, I even think about here how entitlement is such a 
buzzword now. And yeah. yet I feel like the Republicans have co-opted basic social benefits and supports and they use the word entitlements. And now, yeah. you know, people who are con- considered Democrat or considered uh, yeah. even mainstream or liberal also use it. And I'm right. like, that's not entitlement. So it's just interesting to hear about the charity and, and what that what a word can convey. Yeah. I mean, it's so intense. But it's also the problem we ran into there is that the Irish tell stories in a very different way from how Americans tell stories. We were talking a little bit earlier how they almost talk in it's like a circular thing where they, they say something and then circle back around and then say something else and then circle back around. It's really gorgeous. But there's also another thing in Ireland, and it's called notions, as Julian, our Irish producer of Julian Clancy, brilliant, explained to me. And the idea of notions is that, like, it's like you don't want to have notions about yourself. It's the same thing in um, Australia. They call it tall poppy syndrome. Like, you don't want to be the tallest poppy. got to cut that puppy, poppy down in the field of poppies. And so there's something about getting up on stage and talking in a very personal way that in Ireland, I just think it seems like narcissism, like they'd rather get up and tell a story about their family or something. It's just a slightly different style from the very, the deeply personal moth style storytelling. That is what George really came up and said, let's do this. Let's take these dinner party stories, stories friends tell across the table. Let's take those and put them on stage. And in Ireland, it was just not quite landing. Like, we were having trouble getting people to put their name in the hat in Dublin. That's how, at the story slams, you put your name in the hat and they pick the first 10 names. And um, eventually what we did was we turned the whole program, we cried uncle, turned the program over to Julian and um, Caleb, who's our Irish host. And I have to say they're thriving. They're doing so well. They slightly rejiggered the format. They made it a little more Irish. They just started their own podcast, which we promoted, and it's doing really well. So I think it just, in the end... Ireland needed Irish, Irishmen and women yeah. running their own thing. Yeah, whereas our London series is doing really locally well. grown. In Melbourne is fantastic. Yeah, it's just it's funny how just how this sort of American style storytelling it translates some places, but not perfectly everywhere. So when you started out in the moth, you had talked about Elizabeth Gilbert, and I, I wanted to you know, ask you about yourself, because you also have experienced grief. And of course, when you started The Moth um, shortly after, uh, the city that you were working in was also experiencing grief. And I was curious, to what extent work helped you deal with this and may have also been challenging? I think the fact that I just started The Moth when my mom died, she died about a year in, honestly saved my life. Like the two things I feel like saved me were The Moth and at the time, right after 9-11, I went to Burning Man. And so having this whole other community and this whole other art form, that's kind of the opposite of the moth. It's all visual and giant and sparkly and crazy, whereas the moth is all about being pulled back. And, you know, it's just a person on stage with a microphone. That, by the way, I meant to say that earlier. That's what appealed to me so much when I'd come from film with a cast of thousands. It takes, like, even on an indie film, 15 people to tell a story. When I walked in the moth and there was just one person standing on the boat deck with a single mic and a little light. And it was just as powerful as, like... A movie with the cost a trillion dollars. I was like, let me in. Give me more of this. But yeah, the, it really was a saving grace that I was coming to work every day surrounded by loving people who were there, whether they were actually working full time. There were only two of us at the time full time or volunteering out of the deep love for it. You know, there's this belief in human connection that the moth was fostering and, you know, the whole basis of, of, the, of it was of like creating space for empathy, creating space for listening. I remember when I when my mom died, she was, it was one of these things where she died really unexpectedly, but after nine years of being sick. Does that make sense? Like, yes. She just she seems like she could have hung on forever, but then, you know, then suddenly quickly it was over. And I was supposed to go to a community training for volunteers that day. Had to get on a flight at like 6 a.m. and just like leave Leah a message that she would get when she woke up that she was doing the training by herself. I was gone for a week. And when I came back, first of all, you couldn't even see my desk for all the piles of like flowers and cards and things people in the community had dropped off. And trust me, this was totally out of their way. We were down on Wall Street at the time. We were weirdly back down there now. But people would come by and they'd sent things. And then I would find out later that the Monday after... Leah received a call because, you know, so many people because there was a trainee new. And um, also Jen Hickson with the moth. It was one of my first calls because my my, weirdly my high school boyfriend was visiting me from New York the weekend Mama died. And Jen just came and got him and just took him with her like on her weekend, basically. And everyone entertained him. So kind. But I found out that they received she received a call from all these core volunteers. um, Jen Coots, Terry Galvin, so many wonderful people who were around back in the day saying, we know that Catherine's out and it's basically just the two of you. And email us what you need. And they just came in shifts and sat on the phones and sat at my desk and answered, like, info at themoth.org and covered everything until I could come back. 
First of all, I'm so sorry about your mom. Oh, thank you. And I lost the closest person to me. And I remember getting on stage while she was in a coma and not knowing if she was going to make it at that time. You know, this is before she passed away. (laughs) For anyone who knows even less science than I do. Um, And it was helpful to be able to get on stage Mm -hmm. at that point. And I, I have performed through some pretty dark times. At the same time, I find that I have I have less bandwidth for, mm-hmm. like, the political silly stuff, the bureaucracy, yeah. like, any of the, the little things. It's very difficult for me to deal with, particularly when I'm under stress. Yeah, I can understand that. And that's the, that's the interesting balance. On one level, there's this deeper connection to work because everything becomes more meaningful. But on the other hand, it's like it's true. Like all the just the shallow, dumb stuff. It's I like, can't. I can't. Like, no, no, yeah, no, 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 no. And on that note, I mean, you, you are a parent, you are a partner, you have this incredibly busy international business, essentially, of nurturing all of these wonderful stories, in addition to editing books, in addition to editing yeah. and, you know, hosting sometimes a, a weekly podcast, uh, The Moth Has, which is extraordinary as well. How do you unwind? Uh, well, one thing that's really, it's like so cliche, but this changed my life in the last couple of years is I did learn to meditate, thanks to Sharon Salzberg. Not to do a commercial, but weirdly is finally t- making your moth debut in this coming week. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, because I was after originally for a storyteller, but um, a really close friend of mine said, you know, I tried and tried. It wasn't working out. And she goes, go to Sharon's class. And if then it doesn't work out, I'll leave you alone forever. And I was like, that's great to have Robin not bug me anymore. I'll go. And I went and I sat in the back and was prepared to run away after two minutes. And in five minutes later, a two-hour class was over. So that has really helped me. Now, of course, I'm inconsistent with it. But you can tell when I'm being consistent (laughs) because when I'm inconsistent with it, I just – every little thing gets to me and everything seems like a horrible headache. And when I'm doing it consistently, it just takes a little bit of the edge off. So that helps. I also just recently moved to Fort Greene. So excited. I'm so excited. I was in, like, just Williamsburg, which love when I was there for a long time. But it just, it was in a way that I didn't understand until it was out, wore me out. And so suddenly being with like, you know, brownstones and green, um, it's really made a huge difference. So I've, been, so I've been trying to go for walks almost every single morning. But I also, I really love to cook. Yeah. And so our new place, I actually have a separate kitchen. Amazing. You which, have a, do you have a washer, dryer, and dishwasher? Um, I do. I'm coming over. Okay. I'm you, biking please down. Please do. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. The washer, dryer was like a total game changer for us. Oh, we, partly, we never before we had a kid. I think we never would have if we hadn't had a kid. But having a baby, we're like, okay. And then once you have it, it's like you're so ruined. Yeah. But so I really love to cook. And so now I have a separate kitchen. I have the space to like chop it and have a little peaceful downtime while I make dinner while the boys are watching cartoons in the living room, which is now as far from me as you can possibly be in the house from the kitchen. So it's actually it's big, little things like that. I sometimes find it and really Burning Man is the little things. Although I haven't been to Burning Man in a long time. Why is that? So why did you stop going? Because I had a kid. Okay, and it was just too hard to be. I'm one of those crazy burners who goes out for at least ten days, if not longer, because I like to help build the city. Part of my joy is like. Get it out of my head and, like, just hand me some hooks and give me a big hammer and let me just hammer things into the dirt and get all my aggression and frustration and everything of the year out as I just do some teeny tiny piece of building a giant dome. And I love it. And the problem with having him is I can just never be away quite that long. I tried to go one time and I was there for five days and I felt like the moment I got there, it was time to go. And it was just too stressful. But I'm hoping to go again. I actually got I, – I had a little birdie man this year because I actually got to do something outside of the moth, but it was very moth-like, which is special, which is I ended up being helping the Bernie man. Larry Harvey, their founder, died this year. I'm sorry. Yeah, and they did a gorgeous memorial for him at the Castro Theater, and they decided to make it storytelling citric, and 10 people told stories about Larry and Burning Man, and I, with um, one of my moth sisters, ended up directing the stories for his eulogy. How beautiful. So it was so meaningful to me. It was kind of like my world's coming together. You've directed um, so many stories. You did, you know, Adam Gopnik recently at uh, yeah. at the Public Theater, and you did the wonderful guy. He sounds like um, Vincent Price. Oh yeah, Edgar Oliver. Edgar He's Oliver. The best. Yes, you've directed his, you know, extraordinary and absolutely unique shows. Yeah, I can see from producing you have a, a, an impeccable eye for the big picture, and I can see how you also enjoy getting in the details of the storytelling and working with all of these people and how collaborative that can be. What do you get out of directing? It's just such a gift to be able to collaborate with people. I mean, you know, because we got worked on the story together, like to be able to kind of dig into the, you know, the biggest stories of people's lives and try to pull apart like what it, 
what it meant to them and you know why this story like of all the stories why is this the most important and um to you the storyteller yeah. and like what are you really trying to say and if you could help people figure out what they're trying to say and what like of all the things in the world they could say what are why choose this for this 10 minutes yeah. it really is um something i just never get tired of i love it so much um i've been actually directing a lot more this fall than i have for a while i was getting a little away from it and even though I feel like it nearly killed me, suddenly yeah. I'm like, I'm constantly working with storytellers. I also think that it refilled my cup a little. I was feeling a little burned out over the summer. Well, and some people, I mean, everyone has a certain level of stress that actually enables them to thrive. Yes. And um, you certainly have a high tolerance for it. But this particular last, I'm going to say since 2016, and, and you know, obviously Trump is, is not suddenly a new phenomenon, but, but having the repercussions yeah. is a, a, a ma- we're in a massively different time totally. in which it's not, po- you know, I look forward to post-traumatic stress disorder. Instead, I feel like we're living in perpetual traumatic stress disorder. Mm. And storytelling feels like this extraordinarily vital outlet right now how do you feel? Does this help you from being burnt out? Or do you feel like, look, it's the same job I had before? Oh, no, it's definitely not. I woke up the day after the election and actually wrote this impassioned email to our whole staff and was like, you know, basically, we are never going to be more needed than we are right now. Because the way this will be won or helped is by finding people who can tell the stories that are going to need to be told. Because in the end, to me, all politics, all laws, all of this comes down to individuals and their stories. It all comes down to um, people and their lives and the choices that they need to make about the li- their lives, about their friends' lives, about their families' lives. Um, and so I sent them this passionate email saying, do whatever you need to do to take care of yourself. If you want to come in today, come in today. We're going to have a pizza party. We're going to watch. For those who want, we're going to turn them. We're going to watch as Hillary, you know, like the heartbreak as we all cried watching her step out on that stage. And we're going to order lunch in and we're going to all, you know, be together. And um, if you don't want to come in today, if you just want to stay in bed in your pajamas, you do it and you take a sick day. If you need to take three days, you take it. If you need to, if three weeks from now it finally hits you and you need to stay home in your pajamas and watch Netflix, you do that because we are going to need you to be whole so we can all stand up against this together. And I want to encourage people at home, if you want to stay at home in your pajamas, you don't need to watch Netflix. You can listen to The Moth. You can also <laughs> read. Uh, the Moth has some extraordinary uh, books, which Catherine Burns has helped edit several of them, Stories of Wonder. And I also want to encourage the the podcast, uh, The Moth Radio Hour, which is a co-production of PRX. You can get it on almost any public radio station or iTunes or Stitcher, wherever it is you go. You have duly deserved Peabody Awards <laughs> and now the Employee of the Month Award. Catherine Burns, I'm so grateful to you. Oh, I love you so much. It's been a total honor and thrill to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for being an employee of the month. Hooray! What an honor. What good company. I'm so glad to be able to share the perspective on storytelling from an artistic director's point of view. And I'm glad you stuck around because guess what? Joe Firestone is next. Joe Firestone, you come from Missouri? Yeah. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. No, no. <laughs> I think some people in Missouri call it Missouri and some people call it Missouri. And I guess it depends on if you're from one of the two cities or not. And where where did you grow up? St. Louis. So it's a Missouri for me. And did you always know you were going to be running a show and in fact have an actual game, Punderdome? No, no, I didn't. I didn't even know that comedy was a job. I think I, I wanted to be like, a, I think when I was little, I wanted to be a witch that makes sense. That's the the thing is people need to just believe in themselves and then they can be who they were meant to be. You think I believed in myself that I could be a witch? Well, and here then, you are. And we're well, here to talk about your witchery. I guess witchcraft. I wanted to I wanted to be a witch like Bette Midler in Hocus Pocus. Oh. I liked her style. A one-off witch. Well, she was like, I, I liked that she was kind of eternal and she was kind of like to sing. So I, that was a big, big witch points for me. I have I have read in an interview with, that you in, enjoy sort of these big comedians. Yes, uh, you know Bette Midler, Bridget Everett. Yes. What is it that that they particularly evoke for you that that brings you so much joy? I don't. I they just like they're performers. Like they perform. Like yes. like Murray Hill. Like oh yeah, Murray just performs, and it's like that's it's like a stage, and it's like a I don't know something about it's so magical to me. You like you're transformed. 
I feel transfixed when I see them. And for Employee of the Month fans and new listeners, uh, you can actually go back in the archives and hear Bridget Everett several times on the show as well as Marie Hill. But I just want to say how much I agree. It is. Yeah. I, I think particularly I'm such a cerebral person that I can write for anything. I could do voiceovers. Yeah. I, you know, I can act in a very specific part. Um, but the idea of putting on this huge show— much they're almost directing themselves in addition mm-hmm. to having this phenomenal talent as a singer, dancer, you know, and just being hilarious. Yeah, like just the ability to like be a show person. It takes you back to like it makes you feel like part of this humanity where it's like throughout time people have wanted to see performers. Like yes. yeah, I just like that. I like people that do that. I can't do that and I like when people can. Like, there's a lot of new comics coming up right now Yes, uh, that are doing that, and it's, like, so magical to watch. Like, um, I don't know if you've seen Catherine Cohen or Larry Owens and, like, no, I'm gonna have to like Matt Rogers. It's, like, these really big personalities that are just, like, hello, I'm here, and it, it's so fun. It makes it so fun. It's interesting because on a, one level, it can veer towards sort of a lack of soul or authenticity or honesty or, like, sometimes when people are too show busy— it can feel like you're just watching an entire thing of Botox, like, in front of you. And True. you're like, you know. But I feel like the artifice goes so far. Like, no matter what, a stand-up is lying, right? Because they're saying, like, re- oh, the other day I ran into my ex. And whether you say, like, the no. other day I ran into my ex or, like, the other day I ran into my ex, either way, you're lying. To go even further and to, like, sing and dance about it seems like maybe going closer to the truth. If we're all going to be performing, quote-unquote, and, like, kind of making up this persona you might as well you know put on an outfit and really go to put on the tap shoes you know put on a show yeah and i i can't do that but i admire people who can and you do do that right you've had a slew of really really funny shows you had one where you were performing in front of dolls all these shows i just make other people do them i set up the circumstances and i have other people do them this doll show i had people come in and do stand up for the dolls and so I was just there. I just set up the dolls, and then it was in a window so people could see the adults talking to the dolls. And what about the um, Supreme Celebrity Experience? What was that oh, one? Oh, that one, that one was a long time ago. That was with Joe Parra. We, would, we claimed that we got these big-name comedians, and so people would pay money each time not knowing who the comedian was. So they'd have to pay more money. And, like, once they got access to the premium. Oh, meaning that each time a comic came on, so you'd start out with one comedian and they were worth $5. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, that's that's kind of cruel to the— It was oh. kind of a weird concept. But well, then one time— I'm just thinking of the, the younger comics or the, or the ones <laughs> like myself, you know, that were not necessarily the, the main squeeze. You we, know? we were only worth $3.45. <laughs> I think cool, Todd cool. Berry was worth $28. Well, that's good. That's yeah. good to know that you Which can— Which is—you know, he's worth more, at least 29 or I'd like to know that you could have an extraordinarily prolific career. <laughs> yeah, yeah, worth $28 at UCB. <laughs> it's, you've been in movies, television shows. <laughs> <laughs> one episode of Sex and the City and you get $28. Well, don't— don't leave out Dr. Katz. And, oh, yeah. And the of course. He's been in plenty, you know, all Great worth it. Film. But like one time we did a, we, we got a limo for the ultimate celebrity experience. So they would go for a, a ride around the block, the audience That's members. Terrible. Joe thought it'd be really funny if the last caravan of audience members in the limo, they the limo just dropped them off at a McDonald's half an hour away and didn't take them back. So half an hour later, they come walking back with, like, McDonald's cups, and they're pretty upset. Do you know that you and Joe Para have been doing, basically, by dropping people off in a caravan? <laughs> it's reinforcing all of the horrendous stereotypes that Donald Trump, all the propaganda, is pushing forward. <laughs> this was, you can talk to Joe Para about this. this. this I realize bef- he's your boss as you're on oh an adult God. swim show now, but I really— I just want to put that out there. That this, was, this was pre-2016. We didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know what— what we were reinforcing. I do find it amusing on a certain level every time they bring up the word caravan because I'm like, you're just talking essentially about a minivan. Like, <laughs> or van. like you want to get really into the specifics of what one Toyota you saw that was a van of some sort. But I just every time they use the word caravan as if it's supposed to evoke meaning about something far deeper yeah. um, than it does. Yeah. Like it's supposed to like scare us. 
Yes, that the, it's, oh, there's a these, whole care of all it. these people are illegally emigrating here to do yeah. jobs that no one here wants to do, and so many of them, <laughs> thankfully, come here and, and do so much wonderful good. Right. And yet, like we're fixating on the five people in one particular caravan that may or may not have had drink holders. We don't even know. Um, so you are writing for an Adult Swim show. Can you talk about it? Is it an animated show? It's a live action show. Can you talk about what it's like to write for a live action show? It's fun it's like uh you get to like kind of think about what makes sense for different characters you get to build up characters lives and stuff it's pretty interesting and how does it differ from say when you're writing for the tonight show which you wrote for well the tonight show is like you're paced you know you got a show every night and so like you have to like be like looking at the news in a way that you have to make jokes about the news like you have to read it with a lens that like and constantly be absorbing information in a way that like how can I make this funny? Yeah. Right? And a lot of the news isn't funny. So it's it's kind of, it's a is that pretty right? tough job around the, this time of uh, our lives. But uh, the – and it's like no matter what, you have to do a, an hour-long show. There's an hour-long show that night. So you got to kind of be constantly working. Whereas this is more like you get to be a little bit more thoughtful and more like it's slower I believe one of your initial writing jobs was for Chris Gethard. Is yeah, that correct? Yeah, I worked for him. Chris, uh, who has also been on Employee of the Month, is a, a magical performer. And I just had this enchanting show on public access that then became a, a yeah. much bigger show, the, the Chris Gethard Show. Yeah. And um, can I can I hear a little bit about how you got involved in that? Because my only window into public access, I, I had been interviewed on it. And uh, the only other window I had, of course, is uh, Robin Bird, who is a, a well-known adult entertainer. And by well-known, I mean known by the... 50 people who don't uh, can't afford cable and therefore we're watching public access. Um, but can you tell me about Chris Gethard's show? Because he really was one of genuinely reached out to all of the the, the real freaks and geeks out there. Yeah. He's he's so good at that. He's so good at like figuring out how to talk to people that like and like he's so good at like um, like his podcast, Beautiful Anonymous now. Yeah. It's like people – like he can just talk to anybody and he's really good at connecting with people and connecting with his audience in a way that's like so impressive to me. It's like so – there's so much to learn there. And how did you all connect? Mm, I think through our mutual friend Josh Sharp because uh-huh. like Josh Sharp was like, hey, you're doing all these weird shows and Gethard did all these weird shows and you probably should meet each other and talk. Well, one time I did meet him before, but he didn't know I met him because it was before I was really doing a lot of stand-up. I would go to a lot of stand-up shows, and I went to this stand-up show. It was a whiplash at UCB. I went once, and Chris Gethard was sub ho- substitute hosting, mm-hmm. and he was like, I guess I accidentally heckled him, and then he— What do you mean you accidentally heckled Well, him? he was like, how do you think I almost died today? And he asked the audience, and I suggested that he was on a treadmill. Like, you could almost fall off a treadmill. He took it as like a, you're making fun of me for being out of shape, which I wasn't doing. But then the rest of the comics all kind of picked on me, too. I had a lesson in, like, sitting in the front row and talking. I wish you could impart that lesson to my mother. <laughs> but but in fairness to you, you were at an improv uh, theater, Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. And, and so people often give, the, the performers ask well, he did ask. He did ask. So you were responding. Yes, but not in the way that he wanted. You mentioned going to comedy shows when you were first starting yeah, out. I went to a lot of Employee of the Month. You did? Uh-huh. Really? Yeah. Oh, that makes me so happy. When was that UCB? Yeah. Oh, Joe. That makes me really thrilled. And then I couldn't afford when it moved to Joe's Pub. Yes, it yeah. got very expensive. It got expensive. we were just at the Bell House at a very modest price. Yeah? Yeah. No, I, I think I would... That that was before I, that, when I was like coming up. I, we yeah, I used to go with my friends. It's such a tough thing, you know. Like as you know from producing a show and 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 you know wanting to ensure that the artists and musicians get paid because what happens is none of us <laughs> make anything in yeah. the end, you know. It, and you're getting a cut of a cut. Yeah. And so I totally understand. I'm always conscious of ticket prices, and yet at the same time, like it's so sad that we can't make a living wage. Yeah. No, it's it's you got to do a lot of different things to make a living with this stuff. Yeah, it's a challenge. You you worked in a movie theater. Yeah. What did you get out of that? I believe you you were not on the concession stand, were you? I you was. Were, yeah, you I were. Did, okay. Yeah, you kind of did everything. Okay. But that was my first job, and okay. I loved it. I loved it because it was a it was a one screen, so 
you didn't really have that much to do while the movie was playing. Yeah. So I read my favorite book. What's that? Confederacy of Dunces. Okay, yeah. I got to read that when I was working there for the first time, and I was like, this is the best book. And it kind of made me love the job because it was like you got a chance to read. I thought you were going to talk about all the movies you saw and how it inspired you to go into entertainment. (laughs) No, it was only, um, (laughs) what movie was it? It was mostly just that Batman movie that wasn't, it was War of the Worlds for a really long time. And then it was one of the Batmans. Was this growing up? Was this in high school when you had this job? This was right after high school. In high school, I did a lot of babysitting. And I did have some regular babysitting clients, so I I did pretty good on that end. And you've written for three uh, men, uh, Chris Gethard, Jimmy mm-hmm. Fallon, and Joe Parra. Have, mm-hmm. have there been other te- television shows that I'm missing? I worked, I've written, I've written for like a pilot or two, but that's about it. What is it like writing for these hosts, whether they're male, female, or a dinosaur, it doesn't really matter, but, but that they're not in your voice, that you're writing in their voice? It is. It's like a learning curve. I'm still learning how to do it. But I feel like, like uh, with Chris Gethard, it was a little bit more open because you weren't really pitching him jokes to say yes you're more just pitching concepts like strange kinds of he just wanted to do things on television that no one had ever done like before. when they had all the puppies yes there was one episode where they had there were just tons of dogs running around mm-hmm. it was it magical was all dogs yeah but it, yeah so like it was kind of like just figuring out what could be never seen before and that was like less and that was more kind of i guess in my wheelhouse than like um I'm not as good at monologue jokes as I am about, like, concepts. Well, there's a a bit of a formula, I'm told, to doing late-night shows. Was that true in your experience? I think that it's it's helpful if you can figure out your own formula. Okay. Because you have to write, like, 100 jokes a day. Wow. Regardless of what they are. So it's like if you can come up with a process that gets you to write quickly, high-quality or higher-quality jokes, then it'll benefit you greatly. What was your process? I spent a lot of time on this website called Random Object Generator, and I would just refresh it, and you'd see six pictures of random objects, and it would kind of clear my mind a little bit. Did you start in improv, stand-up? How did you, how did you start in A comedy? little bit of both. I didn't really do well in either one, but I tried both. What does that mean to do well in a subjective? Like, I didn't really, I wasn't really, really great at improv, and I wasn't really great at stand-up, so I just kind of tried to... I ended up just putting on my own shows a lot. That's kind of where I found a little bit more success. We're going to segue away from your comedy career, which mm. continues to blossom. Great. To your music career, you directed a, a music video, Arcade Fire. Oh, wow. You did some research. Wow. I did. Joe, I, I, not I invested Fire. in a Wesleyan education, <laughs> and I took it seriously. No, but it was. I thought it was a member of Arcade Fire. Yes, a member of Arcade okay, Fire. Okay, so I wasn't Will completely Butler. off. No, right? yeah. but yeah. But let's be very clear. I wasn't completely off. No, you were definitely not completely off. <laughs> um, all right. So you knew uh, some members of Arcade Fire from growing up. Will Butler, I knew. I know his wife. I went to the same high school as her. And she was friends with my brother. And so you were opened for them uh, as well, right? I opened for Will. So Will was in a band with Julie Shore, who I went to high school with, and Sarah Dobbs, who I went to high school with her sister, and and this other guy, Miles, who... It, I. Arntzen, who I didn't go to high school with at all, but basically I knew three people in this band, and they wanted a, for some reason, for part of the tour, they wanted a comedy act to start. Well, but that is, uh, I don't want to say common, but it does happen. Like Eugene Merman yeah. uh, does a lot with musicians, and it always seems so tantalizing. And then you have people like Dave Hill, who's a fabulous comedian, right. but also a, a formidable uh, musician. Yeah, no, I I found sometimes it was so fun and sometimes it was so hard. Tell me Be- about the hard ones. Because they don't really, a music-going crowd doesn't really want to see comedy. That's when it really helps to be a real, that middler type, because yes. you can snatch them. Whereas if you're maybe a little bit more on the, let's go ahead and say, unassuming side, if people are like, why are you ruining my buzz right now? Like, this is, I'm trying to get buzz. I'm trying to forget about work. You're talking to me about your mother. Get out of here, you know? Well, and also at music shows, people feel more comfortable talking during the show. Yes, they and talk, and they talk at you, and they heckle. It's a, they're a little bit of a rowdier crowd. So you had success quite early on in your career. So you, you came from Missouri to, to New York. I feel like it took me a, a while, but maybe... I I was I was doing a lot of catering for 
most of my time in New York. For how many years? 2014 is when I got my first writing job. Okay, and when did you start in comedy in New York? In 2009. But I don't think I was... It felt long. If Well, I guess it felt like I wasn't making progress until I did. I feel like I've been lucky in comedy. Like it, Yes, you have. I've been lucky, and I feel like I've gotten like jobs where a lot of people still haven't gotten jobs. And I, But I've, at the same time, like I couldn't tell you where my next job is coming from. I couldn't tell you what the next thing is going to be. Or, like, I don't have anything coming up. Um, I guess I shouldn't say that. I have lots of things coming up. So many. I'm full. But, uh, the yeah, like, I really, it feels so unstable. I was uh, being ironic when I said, yes, you've been lucky, because the truth is that's true for everyone. And, and that luck is so often underestimated because we tend to talk to people who are exceptionally successful and then they give a, a narrative that's backwards, that's in hindsight, yeah. about how they got to X, Y, or Z. Yeah. Um, luck is often reinterpreted and misinterpreted, I would say. But, yeah. but there, there is no one in which luck isn't some type of factor if you are, A, alive and, and right. breathing, and um, B, you know, if, if you're far along in your career or even somewhere in your career. No, I think you're right. I mean, I think that um, I was, I was going to say something about, oh, luck, uh, shoot. Oh, I don't remember what I was going to say. Acting. Let's talk about acting. Okay. You've appeared as Betsy DeVos on NBC, but then you've also actually been in, you know, roles where you're an actor, like High Maintenance. Mm-hmm. And then you've also created your own series and things like that, like you did this hilarious show with Aparna. Um, oh, yeah. So can you tell me a little bit about what it feels like when you dive into these different You do such an characters. extensive Google search for this show. I'm very impressed. I actually don't use Google. I go to the library. <laughs> so I got most of this out on microfiche. Yes. Oh, that's what I was going to say. I was Okay, so when I first started out, m- my friend Dylan and I were doing this sketch show together. And we were always asking people, like, how they got successful or how they achieved their dreams. And everybody was just like, I was working for a while and then it just happened. Yes, that's right. And that, the narrative was always just, like, so simple. And we were yes. like, how does it, what? How does what happen? Totally. Um, do you enjoy acting? What do you get out of it? What scares you about it? Um, I always think I enjoy acting because there's so many snacks. Like, there's the crafty table. Nobody tells you about the crafty table. It's everything you ever wanted to eat and under literally one tent. And it's so great. You just eat and eat and eat. So you enjoy the snack part. I love that. And I I get a little, like, I I still don't feel like I know how to act. I feel like it's weird that people hire comedians to act because I I really don't know what I'm doing. But I hear that from comedians all the time, and yet comedians get so many parts. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I don't every time How I get a part it? well every time I get a part it's usually like soft spoken mouse girl so it's not that hard for me to achieve like recently I was talking to a director and the director was like can you do that thing uh like where you close your throat and you like kind of talk really nervously and I was like just my just my voice and they were like yeah yeah that yeah, whatever you're just doing do just now I was like okay well if this is a skill I guess this is my skill I would say my comfort zone is being a therapist. Mm-hmm. Nosy neighbor, I can easily do. That's good. That one's just like. I've never know. been nosy neighbor. But so you get mousy? Yeah, like. like or timid, actual mice. Timid, timid woman trying to work. That's my pretty much what I get cast as. Let's talk about the business, the business of yeah. entertainment. Uh, you went to Wesleyan, I went to Wesleyan. I had yeah. zero business skills. I think I'm still learning. Those, yeah. How do you do? You know how to approach the business side of an art? I'm still learning, but I I learned pretty early on by watching and by what I experienced myself is that the only way for you to do this industry is to create a product of yourself and like give people an expectation of why they would go see you. The young people call it the brand or whatever. Yes, yes. but it's like, what's your brand? Uh, I think maybe my. My brand is quickly crumbling. Maybe that's it, like a like a crumbling, like a biscuit. I would crumb- say your brand is the underseller. The underseller. Yeah. Interesting. There's the underminer, which you don't want to be. Under. Oh, yes. But I think you're an underseller. It's weird because, like, once you figure out what you can do well on stage or what in any of the show business, then you just have to repeat it over and over again because that's what. Once you do something that people like. 
or people have accepted that's what you have to do again and again. That's do you get the bored? No, uh, I think sometimes I take breaks. To deal with burnout or boredom. Yeah, or just like I'm not, when I'm not good. Sometimes I'm not good and so I have to take a few breaks and like take some time, make some soup, you know, read some books and then I'll go back to it. I'm going to assume you're, you know, you don't have a typical day or a typical week because you're going out for auditions all the time and probably being oh, no. writing submissions all the time. No, and none, none of that. No. Can oh. you walk me through what a day in the life of Joe Firestone is like? Do you carve out specific amount of hours for writing? Like, how do you? No, well, right now I'm writing for a show, so I'll get up, make a pot of coffee, yeah. and then go in the shower. And that's an ideal day. And then I come out of the shower, pot of coffee is made, smells like coffee. What a great way to start your day. Yeah, Folgers in your hand. Yeah, so I'll do that. And then uh, drink the cup of coffee really fast, run out the door, try to read a book, read, read some of a book on the train. And then I'll go to work. And what do you do at your writing job? Uh, depends on the week, but like usually breaking story or trying to brainstorm what characters will do. And then... This um, is on Joe Parrish show, mm-hmm. on Adult Swim. Yeah. And can you define for the audience what a live action show for people who don't uh, know? Just with people. So instead of a cartoon, I don't know why they call it live action. They should just call it like humans. It's like I never understood like lit agent. It took me a long time because I thought they were talking about book agents. Yeah. But lit is also used for Strange. television and film. Well, we've really uncovered the major problems but they in shouldn't, entertainment. They tonight. should just call it a show and then they should call it the cartoon, the cartoon action, drawing action. Joe Firestone and Katie Lazarus here to solve all of your problems. <laughs> Um, I want to just reiterate what a phenomenal comedian you are. I want to recommend that people check out your latest New York Times piece as well as your TED Talk and many of your comedy videos as well as your web series. I I continue to be delighted by you. Um, Thanks. Really just enchanted when I go and see you perform. And I, I really love that you seem to be working out your material on stage but also say, I'm going to just try this show. And then you just put it up. Yeah, I guess it's the only way to know if it's really that bad, you know. Well, that is a real artist, though. I think that there's sort of a compulsive need to have everything ready as if it's got to be completely, uh, you know, pitch perfect for for television. And and there's a part of you that obviously is exceptionally successful uh, in the entertainment industry, but there's also a real artist who says, well, how do I feel about this, and why don't I just see what it looks like when I get there? Sometimes I use that as an excuse if something goes badly that I'm just trying to, you know, create. Joe Firestone, this has been completely delightful. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you for having me, Katie. This has been delightful for me, too. Thank you for being an employee of the month. Oh, my gosh. Wonderful. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. I want to thank Catherine Burns. I want to thank Joe Firestone. I want to thank all of you for listening. I want to thank Dana Bialik and everyone at Slate. If you enjoy Employee of the Month, please leave a nice review on iTunes. You can also contact me at Katie Lazarus, C-A-T-I-E-L-A-Z-A-R-U-S on Instagram or on the Twitters. Have a good one. I'll talk to you next week.